0: Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. This is a, uh, a random episode on a random day here and we also don't have Austin, but um, I wanted to get uh, the one and only Peter Bond on as soon as I could. This is a time that suited both of us. Um, so, Peter, why don't you go ahead, introduce yourself and um, then I'll introduce the topic.
1: Hi guys, uh, thanks for having me, Joe. Um, So I'm Peter. Um, I started uh, with the fitness scene when I was 17. Uh, I started lifting back then. didn't take too long before I started reading about it. And then somewhere when I was like 19 or 20, I started reading the literature more. I started out with Cell Biology and went from there, found my way to PubMed. I wrote two books, uh, both in Dutch unfortunately. Uh, one about anabolic steroids, one about sports supplements. i currently also working on an English book on anabolic steroids. And um, I have some publications. Um, one on phosphatic acid, which is a sports supplement. One on mTORC1 regulation. And one on uh, anabolic steroid-induced hepatotoxicity, so liver damage. Related to anabolic steroid
0: usage. Brilliant. Yeah, your article on metformin is one that I've referenced Mm -hmm. many times. Um, So thank you for that. It's a brilliant piece. Um, Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So what we're going to talk about today, really, if it's good with you, Peter, is um, health marker monitoring in the long term for long-term performance-enhancing drug users, specifically focusing on the anabolic androgenic steroid side of things so yeah. what markers should we be most interested in keeping in line etc cetera, etc cetera. um so we can dig through things like what things to look at on blood work maybe urinalyses yeah, what yeah. To look out for what to look out for on an echocardiogram or whether those are necessary or not in your opinion that would be that'd be absolutely awesome so um why don't we start right at the beginning of things with simple blood work monitoring, because I know it's something that you hear time and time again in the PD world is like, make sure you get your blood work done, make sure you get your blood work done. But what markers are we really looking at there? Yes.
1: Yeah, so um, blood work wise, there isn't that much uh, you should check. Um, one thing you should definitely keep track is uh, your cholesterol which is just regular blood work. And uh, depending on how your cholesterol evolves during the time you're um, steroids, you can decide for yourself like whether or not you either want to quit using steroids, maybe stop using steroids uh, lower the dosage, or treat your uh, cholesterol. Uh, in particular, LDL cholesterol, we know that uh, there's not just a strong correlation between Uh, high LDL cholesterol and cardiovascular disease risk. It's uh, an established causal link. And uh, you see that with many drugs, the ones ones which uh, increase LDL cholesterol, nearly all seem to increase the risk for cardiovascular disease and vice versa. So the drugs that lower LDL cholesterol decrease uh, the risk for cardiovascular disease. So if you decide to treat that, uh, you can use something like statins. Statins are usually quite well tolerated. Not by all, but it's something you can start out with if you decide, like, hey, I'm not giving up my steroids usage for whatever reason. Maybe you're a competitor. Maybe your uh, income is depending dependent on your physique, etc. So that's uh, something you should definitely uh, check. Uh, other than that, you need to keep an eye on your hematocrite. And that is uh, so the volume of blood occupied by red blood cells. Usually, uh, about 41 to 51 percent of your blood is occupied by red blood cells. And when it gets beyond that level, um, it's something called polycythemia or uh, erythrocytosis. And basically, the more red blood cells you have, volume-wise, the thicker your blood gets, and uh, that comes at an increased risk of uh, thrombosis. But uh, the increased risk is not that uh, bad, like the absolute risk for uh, a venous thrombolic event if you're a healthy person with a normal hematocrit is 0.16% in the next 10 years. So that's really, really low. And if your hematocrit increases with 5%, um, that goes from 0.16 to 0.21, something like that. So still a really low chance. But of course, if your hematocrit really gets high high, as in 60%, maybe higher, that's when things uh, start to get bad. So that's something you need to keep an eye on. You can treat that simply by uh, donating your blood. Or if you can't do that frequently enough, or you're not allowed in your country due to some regulations uh, involving injections, you can go to your physician and say, "Hey, I want to do uh, a bloodletting," and that would work as well. Or you decrease the androgen dosage, as um, it appears that the increase in hematocrit is uh, directly related to the dosage. At least it is up to 600 milligrams of testosterone weekly yeah. so that's something you can do um other than that yeah you for example uh, a lot of folks they measure uh, the glomerular filtration rate the estimated one in the blood which is an um, indication of kidney function but the downside of this value is that if it um, decreases it already means you have quite some kidney damage because your kidneys have a large reserve capacity so yeah you can measure that but actually you should be measuring something more sensitive uh, for your kidneys and it it's quite rare to begin with by the way uh, kidney damage to, to steroids Something else you can do is, if you take oral steroids, uh, measure your liver markers. So ALAT and ASAT and perhaps gamma GT. But again, if you take oral steroids, you know those values will be increased. And most people won't act on these values. So if they see their liver markers are up, they won't stop the oral steroids anyways. It's just why measure it. And if you don't use oral steroids, there's likely no reason for these values to be increased other than uh, as a side effect between quotes of resistance exercise. And yeah, other than that, I don't feel there are any proper values in your blood you should measure when taking anabolic steroids. Yeah, like you can do the general health routine, but. It, you know, it doesn't really add much. There's a higher chance of just a false positive right, if everyone starts measuring that. Yeah.
0: Can I, um, can I pick your brain on a couple of things that you've mentioned there? Um, yeah, sure. So, firstly, I'm quite relieved because I was on a consultation with um, a couple of guys last night, one of them being AJ Morris, who's probably listening, and I, and I, <laughs> I broke down what blood work I'd probably recommend. And I said, I may be completely wrong, but I've got Peter Bond on the podcast tomorrow. So we'll, uh, we'll see then what the expert says. And um, it was pretty much in line. So that's good. Um, a couple of things for the listeners. I know people are going to be thinking, uh, because you mentioned LDL as the primary yep. Yep. Um, lipid marker to be monitoring. So do we actually have any evidence that suggests that androgen-mediated decreases in HDL something that we need to be particularly worried about in the long term
1: yeah so HDL is a different story Um, so uh, in general if you measure HDL cholesterol it correlates quite well with cardiovascular disease risk. so the higher your HDL cholesterol the lower your risk for it however when you take drugs or anything which uh, increase it like the pharmaceutical industry has had a big focus on that and they've developed quite some drugs which uh, increase your hdl cholesterol a lot like 100 percent or more they don't see a decrease in cardiovascular disease risk so there's a disconnect between um, the concentration of it changing due to an intervention and uh, a change in cardiovascular disease risk And the reason for this is most likely, simply because the concentration itself does not have a causal relation to cardiovascular disease risk. Mm -hmm. So similarly, when something decreases your HDL cholesterol, it does not mean it increases your risk for a cardiovascular disease risk. The story is a bit different for LDL cholesterol because nearly everything which increases LDL cholesterol increases the risk for cardiovascular disease and vice versa. Nearly everything which decreases LDL cholesterol also decreases the risk. So there's a very, uh, like that's an established causal link. And with HDL, the story is simply different. So what they've been doing is um, as of late, well actually I think for the past 15 years or something, I'm not sure. They've been focusing more on the function of HDL cholesterol Like what does it do? How can we measure that? And one assay which has gained some traction over the years is what is called the cholesterol efflux capacity, Mm -hmm. and that simply is an assay which measures the capacity of the HDL cholesterol to retrieve cholesterol from uh, peripheral tissues, which it can then take back to the liver. That's kind of what it does, and so um, there. From the top of my head, I think there are two interventional studies with testosterone replacement therapy in which they measured this. And I think one, not sure if it was a cross-sectional study or simply an observational study in which they had a group of people uh, cycling, and they just measured it over time. But um, here, you couldn't really see uh, any effect on the efflux capacity, so that was interesting. So uh, TRT didn't affect efflux capacity, and in the um, other study, which wasn't an interventional study, I they did like two essays. One was um, not entirely sure, but I think one measured the efflux capacity from macrophages. So macrophages are the cells from the immune system which uh, eat other cells and particles, and they're tightly um related to atherosclerosis so measuring the efflux capacity of these kind of cells is like really aimed at the disease risk of death. and with the efflux capacity of the macrophages they didn't saw a difference so anabolic steroids had no effect on that and they also had an essay in which they looked at the efflux capacity of a specific transporter which is also used by other cells to move cholesterol to HDL particles and herein they did saw um, a decrease if I'm not mistaken. but the question remains how does this uh, tie into cardiovascular disease risk and which is currently just unknown so I think the HDL cholesterol story is just a big question mark currently and not something to directly worry about. Mm -hmm. Cool. Okay, thanks for that. Um,
0: EGFR, you mentioned, is not a a great marker for maybe transient um, decreases in kidney function or kidney damage in the short term. Would you instead recommend maybe monitoring albumin in the urine or something like that?
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, So a way more sensitive measure is just measuring protein, usually in the uh, albumin in the urine. Because when your kidneys get damaged, they usually, at the start, have plenty of reserve capacity to um, maintain the glomerular filtration rate. However, at that point, you already start seeing more protein ending up in the urine. And you can pick this up in a very early stage already. So something I recommend to anabolic steroid users is, indeed, take an annual urine test testing for uh, protein urea yeah, protein in the urine.
0: Mhm. Okay, cool. So to sum up blood work, we'd be looking at LDL um potentially hematocrit just to monitor changes over time. Yeah. Um although the increased risk in terms of a percentage is it's pretty low isn't it? It's something like 1% for every what amount moved above 51, I can't remember. Um But But
1: the absolute risk is really low, but something which should be kept in mind is I get these numbers from uh, a study in which most folks simply at normal levels. So within the physiological range, these increases in risk uh, are valid, probably. And also this was a healthy population. So these numbers can be different for people who are already at risk for thrombosis due to some genetic uh, defect and something related to coagulation or due to something else, perhaps smoking status, stuff like that.
0: Yeah. Right. Okay. So we've got LDL, hematocrit. Uh, were they not the two big rocks that you mentioned on there just in terms of blood work?
1: Yeah, basically. Yeah.
0: Sweet. And then an annual urinalysis. Yeah. For microalbuminuria. Um and then so let's move on to more general monitoring of health then day to day. Do you suggest things like blood pressure or blood glucose or anything like these? Um
1: yeah, so blood pressure is something I should definitely uh keep track on. Um anabolic steroids uh, tend to increase the blood pressure a bit, um, somewhere between five to ten millimeters mercury. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the systolic pressure and this does not sound like that much of an increase but um it does increase your risk for cardiovascular disease uh with tens of percentages uh, mm-hmm. if you get hypertensive and it's quite easy to treat in the sense that uh, you got ace inhibitors and uh, something which is tolerated better are these uh, Angiotensin receptor blockers, and those, on average, decrease the systolic pressure by eight millimeters mercury. So, like, it offsets the entire increase mediated by steroids. And most people taking, especially the angiotensin receptor blockers, they won't notice a thing side effect wise.
0: Yeah, the angiotensin receptor blockers seem, from from the research I've done, to be a drug that was almost made for superphysiological androgen users um, <laughs> i mean e- even the potential i, I believe I-, I read a paper on um is it the drug tel telmisartan
1: tel
0: yeah i think so and um, the or the sartan range of arbs where it inhibits the raas system activation which is the as far as i know the primary pathway of left ventricular hypertrophy from nandrolone um which is interesting also some data on them reducing endocrine levels of IGF-1 which is really the what we want to reduce we wouldn't want to be touching localized IGF-1 but the less systemic IGF-1 we have the better as, as far as I'm concerned so yeah they're definitely good drug and I think that's an important point to drive home because people are, are scared to use pharmaceutical interventions despite yeah. um, injecting huge amounts of androgens um, It's ironic isn't it yeah <laughs> um but they seem to have brilliant like efficacy long-term um and safety profiles so
1: yeah they got a really good uh, safety profile definitely
0: okay cool um so blood pressure is, is there any other sort of biomarkers that you that you would recommend and a aas user track
1: um well um perhaps in older folks but this is uh, a bit sketchy because there isn't much data on this, uh, in particular with anabolic steroid uses, is measuring PSA uh, okay. for prostate growth. Yeah. And that's something I might recommend in people over 50 years old. Mm-hmm. But the question kind of is like, how much is it gonna help actually? Like, will you, because uh, there's already the debate in, these folks who are older, like, should we or should we not measure PSA? Because in the end, if it doesn't, uh, like, they want to screen older men uh, on PSA for prostate cancer, and while they do catch more prostate cancers, these men don't live day longer on average. So why measure it? Mm -hmm. Understood.
0: And um, hopefully by the time most of the listeners here are over 40 or over 50, will finally have those androgens that don't bind
1: the prostate. <laughs> well, actually, um, the thing is with uh, prostate growth, um, we got, I think, three studies which used 600 milligrams of testosterone weekly, and two of them measured PSA, or all three of them measured PSA, no change, and mm-hmm. one of them, uh, and these studies uh, lasted 20 weeks. And one of them even used an ultrasound to measure the volume of the prostate that didn't change either okay. and there's this uh, hypothesis called the saturation model and quite some evidence pointing points in the direction that the androgen receptor in the prostate already gets saturated in the hypogonal range okay. so if you use high amounts of androgens it's not leading to extra androgenic action in the prostate. Hmm. That's really interesting.
0: Um, okay, so, so far under that umbrella, we've got blood pressure as a as a big rock to add to our blood work yep. that we discussed prior. Cool. Um, okay, so how about we move on to what most anabolics users are most concerned about and probably the most causal link to death that we hear about is uh, cardiac issues.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: heart monitoring, do you, what, what do you suggest there?
1: Yeah, definitely uh, take an annual echocardiogram because um, there's quite some evidence indicating that prolonged anabolic steroid usage in high dosages uh, leads to diastolic dysfunction of the left ventricle. And there's also some evidence um, indicating that there's some systolic dysfunction of the left ventricle and even of the right ventricle. And this is something you can spot quite early on uh, with echocardiography. So that's definitely something I would recommend to do annually. Yeah. And for anybody
0: listening in the UK, I see a lot of people say that they got an echocardiogram because it's a bit, but what they've actually got is an electrocardiogram just because it's abbreviated ECG. So yeah,
1: that's uh, something entirely different. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So um, that abbreviation does not mean echocardiogram and they are available privately over here for about 800 pounds. So that's not a huge expense to, to do once per year. There is also a petition going on at the moment. Um, within a company that are offering free echocardiograms to people within the UK, um, under the sort of political guise that everybody should have free access to cardiac health monitoring. So if anybody wants the link to that, let me know. And, um, yeah, that is cool. I'm trying to, um, get involved myself because I could do with saving 800 (laughs) pounds, you know, but, um, I don't think, I, I think if you're going to take anabolics, the onus is probably on you to, to spare, 800 pounds to just have a look in your heart once a year. It's not a huge
1: expense. No, um, oh, it's, it's definitely worthwhile in my opinion. Like This is the sole thing um, which is probably most important for your health with prolonged usage in high dosages. And it's something that uh, seemingly happens in quite some users.
0: Mm. And what yeah. we're seeing these days, or at least what I'm seeing is people running large amounts year-round Um, So, especially with that degree of exposure, androgen exposure over time, it's 100% worth it, you know? Yeah. Okay, so we've got blood work and what markers to look at. Blood pressure, urinalyses, echocardiogram, um, which isn't an exhaustive list. Is there anything else that you'd throw out there? Maybe we could discuss some supplementation specific for anabolics users um, because I think there's two sides to this. I think there are a few things like I'm a fan of things like berberine, um, red rice yeast, I think is, has a high efficacy for anabolics users. Um, But there's not a lot else. However, over here we're bombarded with products that are like cycle support and stuff, which just has like some milk thistle in it or some fish oil or something. Yeah. Um, So do you think there are any, supplements out there that are particularly useful for pd users
1: well actually the two uh, you just mentioned so red yeast rice extract um it has a statin in it um it's usually called uh, monacolin k in the context of red yeast rice extract but it's actually just lovastatin which is sold as a drug and it's quite effective uh, in lowering ldl cholesterol and the other one you mentioned uh, um it's used for a variety of things it has some evidence for uh, treating hypertension and type 2 diabetes but uh, it has some really good evidence actually for lowering ldl cholesterol as well and because it uh, acts a different way than statins it can be a nice addition to it in case your ldl is really high so those are two supplements uh, which can be very useful for anabolic steroid uses but what should be kept in mind, especially with the red yeast rice extract, it's basically just a drug. It's uh, a statin. So expect the same side effects from it as well. Mm-hmm. And blood pressure wise, uh, there is some evidence that uh, things like potassium and uh, magnesium and coenzyme Q10 uh, decrease blood pressure a bit, like two or three m- meters of mercury. Mm-hmm but uh, evidence is still lacking that it also decreases uh, cardiovascular disease with uh, these things. But it's like um, low risk kind of, as in you're not gonna die from taking a potassium supplement. You're not being at risk from taking a magnesium supplement. So that's something you, and it's quite cheap, so it's something you can easily add to your supplement regime.
0: Yeah. So any avid listeners of this podcast have probably heard us talk about electrolyte balance and sufficient sodium, potassium, calcium, magnesium, um, specifically for PD users like growth hormone and insulin that will drastically increase the necessity for these electrolytes. So yeah, definitely a good call there. I, I, um, I did actually personally, N equals one anecdote, see, um, Using ubiquinol, so as you say, CoQ10, it dropped my resting heart rate a solid like 10 points, according, quite to, my, a lot. Yeah, according to my aura. I went from like, um, I think it was like 68 to 58 in a, a very short time upon taking it, and that was the only difference. So I do keep that
1: in. Um, By the way, I got one uh, remark in regard to the blood pressure thing, okay? So, um, one thing. Uh, which should be kept in mind if you measure your blood pressure and you're an anabolic steroid user you probably got quite big arms and
0: ah yeah yes i know what you're gonna say because as you know i've just been to amsterdam and um, i went to the body worlds exhibition and they have a a blood pressure monitor there and um I i did my wife's and it was low normal and i did mine and it was off the scale Whereas at home, I always pull one, I've always had very low blood pressure. And and Jasmine was freaking out. And I said, Look, we can barely get the cuff over my arm. It's because I had to buy a cuff over here that on the box said, Cuff for Fat Man. (laughs) 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 So, yeah, good point. Sorry, please continue.
1: Yeah, so you got uh, these cuffs in various sizes, and the normal size is size M, medium. And they are accurate up to arm circumference of 31 to 33 centimeters. So that's just not enough for anabolic steroid users, obviously. And uh, there's also a size L large, which is good up to 41, 43 centimeters. This is already quite a lot better for most anabolic steroid users. And then of course, if you're really big, uh, you got the uh, XL, which is accurate up to 51 to 53 centimeters arm circumference. And the thing is, like, if you take a too small one, um, it can overestimate your blood pressure, like up to something like 10 millimeters mercury. So that's the difference between being hypertensive or not, basically.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So again, any UK listeners in Lloyd's, they do. Because my, I had to get one, my arms are 50 centimeters around about. Uh, and they have one in there that does genuinely say cuff for fat man. Um, and that yeah,
1: one. There, The uh, L and XL are usually meant for fat people. Yeah. And um, it's actually how they kind of discovered that you need a bigger cuff for a bigger arm, which is thing obvious. But they saw in obese people, like, hey, these cuffs are really tight. Maybe we loosen up it a bit and they use larger cuffs and blood pressure drops so
0: yeah sweet okay that's a good point there um so we covered supplementation i'm not sure what else we'd really need to dig into there if we were if we were presenting this podcast as the complete guide to health monitoring on anabolics um is there anything else that you would you would throw in
1: there um well, not as much as health monitoring, but um, like also add in some endurance exercise in your regime. Yes, good point. at least do some cardio: Yeah, I think a lot of bodybuilders would benefit from that, as mm-hmm. most simply don't do any at all, or if they do, it's like just walking on a treadmill like that's just not enough. You need to push it a little, kind of bit
0: absolutely yeah so getting the heart rate to at least 130 to the 150 bpm yeah right, exactly for an hour a week or so you know yeah.
1: you don't need a lot of cardio just some like an hour a week would already be a huge benefit uh health-wise I believe. okay
0: good point any other lifestyle factors i suppose we could discuss stress and sleep management i'm not sure if there's anything unique there um that we don't already know other than like sleep
1: getting yeah. get enough sleep is one of them
0: yes uh, long duration good quality sleep uh, you know the, the thing mm. using performance enhancing drugs if if you're going to use them but the rest of your programming is shit um
1: well something which uh, strikes steroids more than the average population is sleep apnea so good point. Uh, they get problems breathing during their sleep and most probably don't even notice. So it's uh, really worthwhile like if you're really thick uh, as in muscular wise or even really thick fat wise to um, just check if you have sleep apnea or not. Like if you wake up after eight hours of sleep and you feel like you've been driven over by a truck each day, each morning, then that would be a good indication to check that out.
0: Yeah, great point. So again, UK listeners, sorry to keep dropping these in here, just hopefully these are practical takeaways. Um, there's a website called, I think, sleepclinic.co.uk or sleepstudy. Um, there are reasons why you would probably not want to test under the National Health Service. Like they are within their right to take your driving license from you, either transiently or, or permanently, depending on the degree of your sleep apnea. Um, so you can very cheaply take the test privately and then, buy a, a CPAP. Um so like that's what I did. And um it is a little bit more expensive but um it's probably in your best interest to do so. Um and it's way more common than you think, I think. Oh yeah. By the time I had mine tested, uh, they give you an, an AHI number. I believe that's just the degree of sleep apnea. Mine was twenty seven, which put me in like the Extreme range. Um, and I'm not the heaviest guy out there. I'm like 260 pounds. Um, so, you know, guys, definitely follow up on that. That's a really good point.
1: Yeah, and something else um, like avoid oral steroids as much as you can. Uh, in principle, just don't use them at all. If there's anything bad for you, it's oral steroids. Like mm. they're very harsh on your lipids. They uh, increase LDL quite a lot. They decimate HDL almost. And they're just bad for your liver itself. And I believe like these case reports with uh, liver cancer from some anabolic steroid users, it really tends to be causal too. As in oral steroids are causing it in some cases. Yeah, and like, the reality
0: is like, what's the point as well Yeah,
1: actually what's the point in oral steroids if you can inject them
0: yeah they're not bringing anything unique to the hypertrophy um 100 milligrams of windstroll isn't gonna add any more tissue than 100 milligrams of an injectable anabolic you know yeah i get it for cosmetic effect around contest time i get it um
1: I get it in two uh, circumstances. Uh, one, if you're uh, like a power lifter or a strong man engaging in competition, um, mm-hmm. there seems some benefit in taking really short acting steroids just before the competition, like one or two hours before. Mm-hmm. It seems to increase strength a bit. And the other is for women. Mm-hmm. And for women, it's less bad simply because they take really, really low dosages and usually... Uh, like cycles of four to six weeks or something. Right. And also, with women, uh, most steroids, of course, not all of them, they have uh, quite a long half life when you inject them. And especially women who are using steroids for the first time, some might be very sensitive for androgenic uh, side effects. And then it's not a comforting thought if you just injected something with a long ester, working quite long, you know? Mm hmm. So under these circumstances, I can kind of understand why you would use oral steroids. But other than that, like most guys are doing, just using it for a kickstart or yeah. for whatever weird reason, don't do it.
0: Yeah, that kickstart nonsense doesn't make any sense anyway. No. What about for just cosmetic effect pre-competition, let's say?
1: Yeah, so it's a bit difficult. Um like it's hard to objectively measure someone's shape and a lot of things are going on uh, towards peak week so it's hard to say if it really has a benefit in it um but i can feel like if you're not sure and you, you want to be number one you want to take that risk i suppose yeah
0: I mean, the average is, uh, I think, people taking orals from six to eight weeks out and they will gradually increase into the show. Then you see the introduction of these halos or Superdrolls, et cetera, et cetera. I wonder, can we recreate that with injectables? I don't know. Um,
1: Well, another thing uh, towards competition is, like you say, they increase the dosage. Mm. I can feel that up to some point you might be, tired of injecting so much in your muscles. So you end up adding more milligrams orally. Right.
0: Yeah. I understand that. And, and generally it'll be the same time that things like testosterone are, are coming down. Anything with an estrogenic component for the majority of people. Yeah. I don't really do that with many people. Um, but that's a different topic for a different day, I suppose. Um, <laughs> Okay, so limit oral steroid use is another thing to put on there. I, I, I would say we've probably covered the big rocks here. Is there anything else that we need to, that people well, should wary of? What
1: we've covered other things in general and which mostly apply to men. Um, but there are, of course, also some things you want to monitor if you're a female using anabolic steroids. Maybe that would be interesting to cover a bit as well. Yeah, let's go. So um, women should basically look at three side effects uh which men don't really have uh, one of them is deepening of the voice mm-hmm. uh, dysphonia and it appears that even at quite low dosages of steroids like uh, they had this one study using 50 milligrams of nandrolone for four weeks so that's really low dosage in which they saw a decrease in pitch of these women after something like a year or so. And it's an extremely low dosage. Mm-hmm. But also some other studies kind of see the same thing. They see a decrease in pitch, even with low dosages. And the, woman, the women themselves, they don't notice the change. So you should monitor that, monitor that in an objective way. And you could use like an app on your phone like focal pitch monitor is one of them on Android, yeah and it can show you the the frequency of your voice, so you can try some uh, some high tones, some low tones, and just uh, keep doing the same thing every every week or every two weeks to see how your voice evolves because you'll likely won't notice it yourself.
0: yeah, and as far as I know, that's irreversible without yeah. Yeah. Pretty serious surgery on the vocal cords. Um,
1: Yeah, so it's uh, for the most part irreversible, and there seems to be like this tiny part which is reversible because there, uh, in some occasions, there seems to be some inflammation of, uh, I think it's called, um, like a swelling of the vocal cords itself. And when that swelling uh, subsides, it's reversed basically so but that's a small part of the whole thing with a decreasing pitch and voice
0: yeah right I know I know a female competitor that did have some surgery but it it didn't do
1: anything Um, yeah I'm not uh, really familiar with how good uh, surgery works for this but I wouldn't risk it to start with no 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 I can imagine 20 years down the road you have kids and there you are with your sort of
0: I do notice nandrolone is is a lot more popular among females than it, than yeah. it
1: rightfully so in my opinion
0: yeah I tend to agree also anadrol something that was previously feared by females now seems to be a compound that females are getting into and, and I can definitely see the efficacy there Um, so
1: yeah um, steroid-wise, nendrolone is probably the wisest choice for those who already have some experience with steroids, as in they already know how sensitive they are for the androgenic effects. Mm-hmm. Um, simply because um, effect, androgenic effect gets decreased in most androgenic tissues because of the 5-alpha reduction to DHN, which is a weaker androgen, and nendrolone itself, which is quite un, a unique thing, nendrolone. And yeah. like the converse holds for testosterone, testosterone's effects gets amplified in most androgenic tissues because it gets converted to uh, DHT. So nandrolone is really a good choice, in my opinion, for women. And stuff like oxymethalon um there are quite some trials with women as well it's well tolerated in general and it does not convert to a more potent androgen um because of l5 alpha reduction so that's good as well and it's oral which is convenient mm. when you stop taking it the next day it's out of your system basically mm.
0: yeah agreed i have to agree with you there and some women are in my opinion from what i've seen anecdotally very dht derivative sensitive um and and the obvious recommendation you see everywhere is take Anovar or take prima Bolum, but some women really don't tolerate it very well at all but on the on the flip side do tolerate nandrolone just fine
1: well prima bolan um, is unique in the sense that it's probably a bad choice in my opinion because uh, prima bolan gets um broken down in muscle tissue quite rapidly actually so its effect stays the same in a lot of tissues and its effect gets decreased in muscle tissue the tissue in which you want the actual endogenic effect mainly the anabolic effect because it gets converted uh, by three alpha hsd to a less uh yeah to a far less potent androgen.
0: Interesting. So you'd also, you'd probably send the same recommendation to men then to stay away from Primo with hypertrophy as the main goal.
1: Exactly, exactly. If that's the goal, you should just stay away from it.
0: Stick to testosterone and nandrolone.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, that tends to be what I do. So that's, a, that's, that's very interesting to hear because Primo is extremely popular. Um, Not I- to my
1: surprise like it's perceived as a mild drug which i get because uh, it's not really anabolic probably because of what i just mentioned and similarly it's also um doesn't activate the androgen receptor that potently so Mm. you won't develop that much side effects and what's even more important i think is that most users they use it in a relatively low dosage Mm. like they won't be pumping one gram Crima No, they won't be. They'll be using like 400 milligrams, main, which is relatively low. Yeah. So
0: if you compare that to 400 milligrams of of nandrolone, you you likely see a much greater net hypertrophy. Probably,
1: most likely, yeah.
0: From the nandrolone. Far more likely. Which again is a, is going against a, a very popular argument at the minute that. Basically, all anabolics add muscle tissue at the same rate. Um,
1: which I'm well, um, perhaps if you manage to like uh, equate them milligram-wise, like there's probably some level of Primobolan which is uh, equivalent to Nandrolone right. in anabolic terms. But yeah, milligram per milligram, that definitely doesn't hold.
0: Yeah, the argument I see for people using Primo a lot is. Hey look, I can take a gram of it and it doesn't do anything to my blood work. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's probably means I'm not doing anything. <laughs> okay. okay. Um have we have we covered everything now? I think this has been absolutely awesome thus far for anybody listening that wants a true account of what they should be monitoring. Well um, there are
1: two more side effects for females actually. Oh yeah,
0: please do. Please do. I'll
1: go over them briefly so um, one is the other is excessive body hair Mm -hmm. hirsutism. this one actually is reversible but it can take a couple of months before you notice it and that goes both ways it can take a couple of months of usage before it really becomes prominent and it can take a couple of months before it subsides again after you quit using steroids and this is likely completely reversible and you can treat it by just shaving or photo epilation. so whatever, it's uh, less, you know, it's not damaging to your health, just a cosmetic issue. And the other one is an enlargement of the clitoris, so clitoromegaly, and this is likely irreversible. And this, um, like a lot of data of, about this comes from trans uh, uh, genders. Uh, studies Mm -hmm. so female to male transsexual patients they give them testosterone usually in dosages similar to trt and they see a growth of their clitoris uh, usually something like two centimeters Mm. in uh, a matter of months like three or four months is already enough yeah so and it's likely very likely irreversible this is something you should probably want to monitor as well yeah for sure i've um you've probably
0: seen them some of the case studies where women talk about clitoral growth and actually how they really like it i always find it quite odd um
1: (laughs) yeah it's well i think most wouldn't like it and i think people only hear the ones who like it yeah 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 um
0: is it, that's always an interesting read on some of the PubMed case studies, or like where um, the complaints on TRT, where you know it's breaking up my marriage because my libido is now too high. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, cool. So that's that summarizes um, side effects for females. I, I, I'm going to assume that you'd recommend the same blood marker monitoring for females that are competitors using uh, anabolics.
1: Oh uh, yeah, basically. Yeah.
0: Great. Great stuff. Um, and th- I believe that's the entirety of, of what we'd recommend here. Do you want to, um, so you say you've got a book, um, an English book coming out very soon. Um, is that covering what we're discussing today? Or is it just a complete book on anabolic androgenic steroids? Or
1: Well, it covers uh, most, if not all, we've covered today. So um, I hope to be releasing it early next year. It has a very large chapter on the side effects and how to manage them. So -hmm. it also discusses things like acne, gynochromastia, erectile dysfunction, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, It covers some basic science behind it and also uh, how much about it is true. So I have a section on prostate growth and then I discuss the literature like is it actually true that anabolic steroids users will see prostate growth, which is most likely not the case. So I cover a lot of uh, studies with humans uh, in that section. And I got a, a chapter on uh, for women using steroids, covering these side effects and birth control. Um, I'm covering how good they work, so covering some um, like Chemistry slash cell biology about androgens and estrogens, covering some pharmacokinetics um, about the injectables and the orals, covering post cycle therapy, uh, serums, aromatase inhibitors, HCG, HMG, basically everything which is somewhat practically related to steroid use, uh, usage is in it.
0: Sounds good. Um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that coming out actually um so early, kind early.
1: Of like done with it yeah.
0: <laughs> you've had enough it's been
1: like two and a half years now and um i've read i think like 600 studies solely for this book and i've included something like near 500 references already yeah. but yeah i'm glad it's almost
0: done wow well i look forward to that and um I'm sure that when that does uh, come out, maybe we could get you back on and we'll run through some bits in that. Oh yeah. And, and pimp that out somewhat. <laughs> Great stuff. All right, Peter, thank you very much for coming on, buddy. Hope that everybody has enjoyed that and that's helped clear up for some of you guys, what you should be looking at in terms of monitoring your health. Um, especially if you're just going into the anabolic world now for 99.9% of people, I believe it's a, A lifelong decision for the most part um so this is something you can take with you always to um look back on and account for all of the things that you should be keeping up to date with to keep your health in check so thank you very much for that peter i really appreciate that you're welcome all right thanks for listening guys we'll catch you in the next one cheers